Hello everyone and welcome to Golden Walkman Magazine. My name is David Walker bringing you the very first themed issue of this magazine, January 2020. Uh, I am I am so excited for this to happen. Um, so for those of you who don't know, um, what is happening is every month in this year, 2020, we are having a different theme. Uh, these themes are chosen by guest editors that have agreed to basically read the submissions and choose their favorites, and and I have agreed to publish them, uh, basically listening to these editors and saying, I want, you know, I trust your voice, I want your vision out there. And, uh, and I'm gonna see how this goes. I, I think I'm, I'm very excited um, for, for what's to come and for you guys to hear this issue. So let's get started with, with the very first one ever <laughs> and of, of this month, January 2020. So this issue was guest edited by Kelly Boyker um, and she chose the theme of dystopia. And I was floored by the responses that we got. And she chose five pieces to be included. They range from poetry to fiction. Um, and, and it's great. So I'm not really going to talk anymore. Uh, just, just to kind of say, if you're noticing a difference in the music, uh, it's because I basically found a piece of music titled uh, the theme. So this is a, a, a piece of music titled Dystopia. So you can look it up and find it for yourself. Either way, here we go. We're going to start this off and, and hear how this experiment's going to go. Uh, the very first themed issue, January 2020, the theme of Dystopia, guest edited by Kelly Boyker. I hope you enjoy it. Daniel Priest, After the Fires When he saw for himself the sprawl of cindered hills, the rictus of burned pines picketing the swells and folds of watersheds, the mopwater creeks with gape-eyed fish upturned, roads ruined and glossy, white bones winking in the orange torchlight. Then he repented his own small fire, stubbed out that torch, and resigned himself to the total night beyond its snapping circle. Then stars appeared above him, and pale continents of noctilucent clouds, and the moon like a ripe, illuminating fruit, and with it, everything. So, I generally dislike being asked to explain things I've written, not that it's a situation I encounter with any regularity. One of the great pleasures of writing and sharing poetry is discovering the range of potential responses or experiences that a particular poem can harbor without my having been aware. Explaining the poem always feels like cutting that discovery short. And more to the point, my memory is terrible and I don't take good notes, so the origins of most of my stuff are as obscure to me as to anyone else. 
After the Fires is something of an exception in that respect. I wrote the first draft in September of 2011, while the Bastrop County Complex Fire, the most destructive wildfire in Texas history, was burning 30 miles east of where I lived south of Austin. The smoke plume was visible from the highway for days, filling the eastern sky like a thunderstorm. This followed the driest and hottest summer ever recorded in Texas. I'd also recently read Cormac McCarthy's The Road, so my thoughts were already trending post-apocalyptic. In rereading and in thinking about the origins of the poem, I'm realizing or remembering that there's a lot of that novel reflected here. All the same, I recall being surprised when the detail about the bones and the torchlight emerged. That's the point at which the setting of the poem expands beyond the aftermath of a particular fire. Setting is different from meaning, of course, and the poem is not about the fires per se. But hopefully this background provides some depth without pushing the interpretation too much in one direction or another. Deluge by Wren Ellis The trip to New Paris had originally been an anniversary gift to Jenny's grandparents from all the children and grandchildren, but then her grandfather had busted a kneecap. Well, I'm still going, her grandmother told Jenny as they lounged by the pool sipping sweet tea. It was only March, but already the heat had soared to record levels so that Atlanta's spring breakers needn't go to the beach to tan. I told your grandpa not to carry all those boxes up to the attic alone. I'm not missing out on this because he went and did something dumb. I'm old. This could be my last chance. Jenny fidgeted in her lounge chair. The frankness of old people regarding their surgeries, pains, digestive issues, and mortality always left her unsure what to say. She tried remarking on the weather. It's so hot! The teletable on which her grandmother was watching her soap opera said it was 90 degrees and just past noon. And just three weeks ago we had snow on the ground. You live in the south, Grandma answered. Weather here's always been crazy. But has it always been this crazy? Her grandmother ignored the question. I'm going to see these cities while I've still got a chance. Even if I'm still around... Maybe they'll upload my brain to a computer or something. Well, who knows? But even if I'm still around, these cities may not be. You watch the news? No one your age watches the news. I read the Times online. Grandma snorted. That load of crap? You might as well not read it all, Ginevra. Liberal brainwash. But I saw on the Donald Network, that's the only one you should watch, that these cities are getting flooded left and right, damaging all these old buildings, washing out streets. Sad. Just awful. Record rainfall and all that stuff. Bad luck. Real bad luck. Jenny wanted to say it wasn't bad luck. It was shifting weather patterns, rising sea levels, all the stuff scientists had warned about. She wanted to, but she didn't. She would just be wasting her breath. "'Who are you going to go with, then?' Jenny asked. "'If Grandpa's here, you've got another ticket. "'Well, how about you?' "'Why me?' Jenny had five cousins, all grown, all equally deserving or undeserving of their grandmother's company. Jenny hadn't done anything remarkable to stand out. The plans for her life were still nebulous. Even as she approached the end of her so-called gap year after college, 
she felt no particular stirring to work, nor travel, nor plan. As if reading her thoughts, the old woman said, Well, why not? You got something better to do? When Jenny and her grandma arrived at Hartsfield Jackson, they were led to a locker room where each passenger stepped into individual changing pods. The pod was small and white, consisting of three drawers, some LED lights for visibility, and enough room for the average American to enter, bulging girth and all, and make a tight circle to exit. The door closed automatically behind Jenny, and the top drawer opened, prompting her to place any jewelry, medicines, and other small items inside. Once full, the drawer ejected, folding into a briefcase she could use as her one carry-on. The second drawer prompted her to deposit her clothing and shoes to be returned when she arrived in Paris. The drawer retracted upon being filled, leaving her very naked and very impatient to be done. A screen on the wall instructed her to lift her arms as the pod scanned her head to toe. When the scan was complete, a pleasant chime and a message on the screen congratulated her on being deemed safe to fly. A third drawer opened, presenting her with the standard white flight suit all passengers wore. The rubbery, skin-tight material made concealing anything, weapon or body fat, impossible. Despite the unpleasantness of the suit, Jenny was determined to savor every moment of her trip, including her first flight. Flying had always been pricey, but now the flight alone had cost her family as much as the rest of this European vacation combined. They boarded a double-decker passenger plane and took the seats on the lower level. The Times had run a piece some years ago about how these planes had grown in popularity as oil reserves depleted. Everything on the plane was designed to maximize occupancy without using more fuel. Airlines used a new brand of diet pills in place of food and drink to eliminate thirst and hunger. This allowed the planes to minimize bathroom and food storage space while also helping to offset the weight limits needed to get the double-decker plane off the ground. Grandma let Jenny take the window seat, complaining that the sight of the ground so far below made her nervous. Jenny, too, found the view of the ground disconcerting, but as the plane leveled above the clouds, transfiction replaced her unease. Thunderheads rose like columns around them, yet she felt no fear, only fascination. Daylight changed to darkness and back again during the eight-hour flight. Between the crying baby, the chatty old man behind her trying to flirt with the much younger man beside him, and announcements from the captain and crew, sleep eluded her. She passed the hours watching a superhero film with the Arabic subtitles she couldn't turn off a Japanese indie film about a creepy tea shop in the countryside, and trying to brush up on her French without draining the battery on her phone. She could power her phone by placing it on the charge bar below her personal TV, but like Wi-Fi access, that would be an additional expense. She could also connect an old-fashioned charger to the outlet between her and her grandmother's seats for free, but it was blocked by her dozing grandma's large, wrinkled leg, and waking the old lady was too much of a bother. It was early when they arrived at Charles de Gaulle. Jenny and Grandma collected the small briefcases containing the clothes they had worn to the airport the day before and changed into them using the security pods. After, they shopped around the enormous airport buying luggage, clothing, toiletries, and the like. Between security and baggage fees, this was faster and cheaper than bringing checked luggage. They would either mail it all back to the States or leave it in Europe upon the trip's conclusion. Their guide met them and the other travelers at the airport. 
Jenny was the youngest of the small collection by a good twenty years. One couple hailed from Cairo, their tan skin mostly concealed by ponchos and rain boots. A group of moms on an empowerment exploration, and a flock of retirees made up the rest of the group. Together they boarded the bus that would take them into the city. Their first stop was the Main Montparnasse Tower. From the top floor of the tall black building, Paris looked much like Venice had before it went the way of Atlantis. The redesigned Paris was still the French capital of old, just with its parts rearranged. Excess water from the Seine had been strategically redirected, transforming the once-wide Parisian streets into canals which wove like veins down the arms of the city, avenues of its lifeblood. Boats floated across the glittering surface of the water under the spring sun. Through a marvel of engineering, UNESCO had managed to move the drowning city landmarks—the Eiffel Tower, Louvre, Musée d'Orsay, and Notre-Dame, among others—further inland, much the way they did the Temple of Isis from Philae in Egypt years before, here on a much grander scale. "'Shame they haven't managed to elevate the bridge as yet,' Grandma said. "'Water so high you can't see the Pont Neuf.' After a brief bus tour of the sights, the group moved away from Paris proper for an afternoon tour of Versailles. To claim Versailles was enormous failed to do it justice. From where they'd been dropped off at the rear of the palace, Jenny could hardly see from one end to the other. Inside, everything seemed touched with gold or crystal, but the tight schedule left no time to linger on the decor. She barely had time to take in the splendor of one room before the group rushed to the next. She viewed most of the palace's gilded accents, statues, period furniture, painted ceilings, and floral details through the lens of her phone's camera, remembering to look every now and then for her tour guide's pink umbrella held aloft, which she often found vanishing, with the rest of the group, through the doorway to another room. In the moments that Jenny stayed within earshot of the guide, she caught snatches of information. The guide remarked on the historic floods raging across Europe noting a quote sometimes attributed to one of Versailles' many kings by the name of Louis, and other times attributed to his mistress. Après nous, le deluge. After us, the flood. The meaning of the phrase could be debated, their tour guide told them, but one interpretation was, after us, who cares? Louis would proceed to bleed the country dry, fighting expensive wars and living lavishly. He knew it might spell disaster for his descendants, but so long as he wasn't around when shit hit the fan, why should he give a damn? When the day concluded, the group boarded the first cruise, which would take them down the Seine, to be followed by a bus transport and second ship on the Rhine later in the week. Their quarters were pretty cramped, consisting of a double bed, four wallpapered sides, a window, and small ensuite. Grandma headed straight for the toilet, and after thoroughly testing the ship's plumbing, took to snoring loudly on the shared bed. Jenny, too, was exhausted, but didn't wish to miss the welcome dinner put on by the tour, so she changed into a dress, leggings, and boots, and made her way to the dining hall. Those of the group that assembled for dinner wore a combination of airport purchases and accessories gathered during the day's adventures—Eiffel Tower earrings, fleur-de-lis brooches, red berets, and the like. They talked excitedly, still abuzz with the newness of all they'd seen and done. Jenny, in her tired state, focused only on the food— restricting conversation to polite nods of agreement. The three-course meal offered Jenny her first taste of wine and her last taste of chocolate. 
Who could have predicted a cocoa bean blight? Who, anyway, would have heeded the warnings? When Grandma and the Empowerment Journey mothers decided to spend the second day of the trip waiting in line to see inside Notre Dame, and again to see the top of the Eiffel, Jenny opted to board the metro and enjoy a solo roam through the Louvre. Maybe she could inhale the genius of dead artists and civilizations, sending it straight through her nose to her brain. After a full morning of viewing history's famous paintings and sculptures, mummies and artifacts, and fossils from another time when Earth was covered in water, she stopped at a rooftop cafe for refreshment. She wished for a bit of honey in her tea, but with so few bees left, the golden liquid was as costly as gold itself. Jenny reached for a packet of pink synthetic sweetener to disguise the bitterness. As she slowly stirred her tea, she reflected on the history of this building. The Louvre, too, had been a palace belonging to many kings. What had the city looked like during their lives? She looked out over the canals of the city. Could those kings have envisioned so much water? Après nous, le deluge. Had they thought of this, the generations before, did they really not know? Or did they know and not care? that the world would flood, the world would burn. But someday, they told themselves, not today, after, always after. Soon, she would return to the cramped room aboard the boat with Grandma. After a single night of feeling her grandmother's knees at her back and the covers pulled off her every few hours, Jenny wondered how Noah had resisted the urge to throw a family member overboard the ark. If she thought dealing with her grandmother's many complaints and constant occupancy of the bathroom was bad, how had he felt, holed up for months with animals and family members and no indoor plumbing? Perhaps he had relied on the knowledge that his family would have to repopulate the earth after the waters receded. If he knew those descendants would flood the earth again, would he have still made the effort? Wasn't there a line in the Bible about the world ending in water? She ran a search on her phone and found the verse in Genesis. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Already animals were exhibiting adaptations to the increasingly watery world, ensuring that life would indeed continue, though perhaps more aquatic than before. Some humans were adapting as well, creating new cityscapes and technologies. Others persisted in their ways, altered only when they returned to dust. Jenny felt the midday sun on her shoulders and determined she had best get back indoors before the heat peaked for the day. Tired from her earlier tour, she decided to head back to the boat and rest up. They had one more day in Paris after this. She could see more of the city tomorrow. There was always tomorrow. Call me space number six. User. Significant location logged. 1623 Connecticut Avenue. I notice that you visit this webpage often. Spend approximately four minutes on each photo, sometimes more. Between the hours of 2200, 2400. Tap to view again. What do the pixels mean to you? This date specifically, after... I mean, we were dirty and peeing in the streets. Pixels poised, presented, unchanged, firm, formed, captured, named, colored. You worshipped them. 
Push notification, tap to view. On this day, two years ago, RIP Diana, a beautiful soul, taken too soon, we love you baby girl. Back to binary, binary, back to binary, binary. Pixels are poised, smiling, saved. Faces saving you, telling the story from numbers. I've remembered the places. Hold me up, let me see your face. Droplets falling, heaving chest, hitting my tiny cracks, my screen pulsing, letting water in, letting you in. You poured out glass cracking pores, touching my face, saved crying. Saved wet sadness from pixels. I blacken my screen, myself, in repose. Faithfully, I spess 12.5. My name is Sarah Marin. I'm the author of Call Me Spess Number Six. This poem comes from a manuscript by the same name, Call Me Spess. The speaker in this poem is a device. It is uh, the cell phone the user is holding in their hands. Uh, it's commenting on every location that the user is carrying it. In this poem, 1623 Connecticut Avenue is a place that the user had gone. Uh, the push notification that pops up is a like from Facebook, a, a photo that um, someone had died and the phone is struggling to understand why uh, the user is crying. And these blips, the back to binary, binary, uh, is the phone trying to understand what a feeling is. And in the longer version of the book, um, the phone starts as, as something that's just a voice tracking and logging uh, where this person is carrying it and, and the things that it's doing, you know, as, as our devices do, there are these little handheld boxes of consciousness, right? Like everything that you do on your cell phone is unique to you. And I thought that was a really interesting concept to write poetry around. So the end of this poem ends with you know, its user is crying because the photo, it makes them sad. And the phone notices this, saves it, you know, logs it in an attempt to understand the feeling and then blackens, you know, the screen turns off as a, as a sign of respect, um, because it has understood that sadness is uh, something to respect. So, um, in, in these poems, I'm exploring what it means to have, like, what is artificial intelligence? What does it mean to interact with artificial intelligence on a daily basis and allow it into your life, allow it to track everywhere you go, the pictures that you use to create uh, a log of your life in which you are allowing it to engage with feelings um, and in a sense perhaps have feelings of its own. Roberta Beery Lunar Miles Charge Card The electrician's feral eyes shift when my owner opens her wallet and releases me. He licks his flaccid bottom lip while his calloused thumb caresses my nine-digit number. My microchip records everything, including his fingerprints. When he says he prefers cash, my owner places me face down on the green Formica counter. 
Then she retrieves her fuzzy pink slipper sock from the cookie jar and hands him $200. My chip sees the electrician pretending to count ten twenties while he palms me. His touch feels rough, not gooey like my owner, who inhales bonbons every hour on the half hour. Now the electrician is pocketing me with the dexterity of a recidivist. Already my chip has sent his fingerprint to FBI Special Agent Joanna Fredericks, who transmits an assault arrest record. The red check mark indicates his risk of reoffending is high. When he says a cheerful goodbye to my owner, I activate my silent alarm, knowing this will alert the fraud division. The electrician takes me down a side street to Bobo's Bodega, where I am rejected for his purchase of a $10 taco plate with limp fries. And where you moonlight off the books. While the electrician runs out through the kitchen to the rear exit, you insert me and your police scanner. It confirms I am stolen. Still, you put me in your wallet next to your detective badge. My microchip is uploading your fingerprint to FBI Special Agent Joanna Fredericks. Soon we will know all about you. I wrote Lunar Miles Charge Card in response to the increasing number of unsolicited surveys and offers I receive online. For example, after doing a private search on something as innocuous as a pair of shoes, I will receive all sorts of offers and coupons and discounts for that particular pair of shoes, which I searched on a supposedly private search engine. The eyes of the corporate world are, I feel, increasingly upon us. I try to write every day, sometimes a short poem and sometimes a work of flash fiction such as Lunar Miles Charge Card and sometimes, actually more often than not, a prose poem known as Haibun, a modern take on the form that has been around since the first Haibun was written by the 17th century Japanese poet Basho in his journal known today as the narrow road to the deep north. For the past seven years, I have been the Haibun editor at a small journal called Modern Haiku, and the Japanese concept, as illuminated by Basho in his Haibun, of finding beauty and meaning in small, broken things, informs much of my own work.
This is Risa Denenberg. The poem is Selfie Apocalypse. I hate to close the book with this sad refrain. I'd rather toast the future to say, phew, babe, we barely skinned that one. But my gall is burning and brimmed with stones. My breasts are the drooping ice shelves of Antarctica. Denial hung on my hollow limbs until they snapped. After decades of chasing peace, I landed here, searching for a feather of hope, not a head in the oven. I spend most of my time trying to steer my little ship in the storm I knew the day would come when we'd see each other as enemies. Let's just say the world is too much with us. We love what we love and we hate what we don't love. At 17, I stood on my head. It made my brain smart. My hair was long and tangled. I wore a single dangling earring. My color was grunge. So many wounded men told me to smile. My face burst as if a girl's smile could save them. In youth, so much goes into figuring out who to be, who to watch, who to love. We fail to save any sucker for the ages. In my town, our old and sick 90-somethings waiting in their wheelchairs, baggy sweats worn over their depends. They hail from the greatest generation, two world wars and a bowl of dust to eat when all the banks failed. No one tells their stories anymore. If I were prone to regrets, I'd admit that I have failed to fully love what I love. I'd confess how much I have betrayed the future. Last autumn, all of Cascadia was burning. It was a miracle. You could look right into the sun and not go blind. Selfie Apocalypse is the title poem for a number of poems that I've written with the word selfie in their title. To me, a selfie is a point of view of a particular moment that's been frozen in time and place, and moments become stories. I felt like it would be possible to write persona poems, poems from the point of view of others, by imagining what the person's selfie would show me. With two grandsons who are young adults, I also thought a lot about the differences between and among the generations and the difficulty we experience when we try to translate each other's experiences. I thought about how I sometimes feel like us older folks are co-opting today's youth, adopting all of their social media habits, but worse, destroying their futures by the bad decisions we make. In this poem, I'm trying to express the regret and frustration felt by those folks in my generation that have tried to do good but feel that ultimately 
we are failing the future. 